Hello, this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today is a journalist, critic and author who writes under her own name and the nom de plume S.J. Paris. Her first novel, Gaveston, won a 2002 Betty Trask Award from the Society of Authors. Since then, she's published an historical thriller series and a memoir about her experiences of living with depression. That was shortlisted for the 2008 Mind Book Award. Her latest novel is Storm, a psychological thriller about a party at a grand French chateau that ends in a murder. As a journalist, she's worked as the Observer's deputy literary editor and has bylines in The Times, The Daily Telegraph, The New Statesman and others. She now writes regularly for The Observer and The Guardian and she's just come out, as I say, with this fantastic piece of fiction under her real name. Stephanie Merritt, welcome to Hi, Meet the Writers. Thank you for having me. It's really, really lovely to have you here because, of course, we bump into each other at festivals all over the place. Yeah, since long, long ago. And it's and it's wonderful to, to read your latest work. And of course, we spoke about your historical thriller series, and we'll, we'll come on to that in a minute. But I just wanted to start really at the beginning. Are you from a literary family? No. Well. In the sense that my my mother is and was has always been a passionate reader, and so I did grow up in a house that was full of books in and in fact both my parents were language teachers so I grew up in a house that was full of books in English French and Spanish and you know my mother was always reading and um, she had a very kind of um, pragmatic approach to you know she once said to me you'll you'll never be alone with a book and so she said you know you you should never worry about um, going out for dinner on your own or sitting in a cafe on your own because you've always got company if you've got a book with you so in the sense that the house was always full of books and um Long before Amazon came along, there were those, I don't know if you remember, those book clubs used to get on the back of the Radio Times where you could, uh, my mother was very canny about those introductory offers where you'd get sort of £30 hardbacks for a pound and then you could sort of suddenly, if you remember to cancel your membership in time, you just got these, so she was constantly joining these book clubs and we had um, shelves full of beautiful kind of coffee table art books and history books. So I think all of that fed into my love of reading, which I, I sort of learned to read very young and then was kind of obsessed with stories. And my dad took me to the library every weekend. So it came. It certainly came from them, my love of books, but they didn't work in the literary world in any kind of professional capacity. Mm. As a teenager, you got quite depressed. Yeah, and I didn't... I don't think I really understood what it was until much later in life. And I, uh, I think um, definitely things like depression weren't talked about. I mean, we weren't from the kind of family where therapy was a sort of everyday thing. It was that was a sort of thing that happened in Woody Allen movies, you know, where people <laughs> went to shrinks. And it was very kind of outside of our, you know, my parents were both from, from very kind of working class backgrounds where that sort of thing just didn't happen. So I think it was only later in my 20s, looking back, that I realised that this, this depression had kind of been with me since, I suppose, about my mid-teens. That was when I began to kind of actually recognise, oh, this is something that, you know, it doesn't just affect great artists and, and great writers. It does actually affect people, you know, all around us. And and I think once I'd recognised it and was able to then sort of talk about it and, and actually go and get treatment, it became much more manageable and much more understandable to me. But I, I, I went for a long time in my teens, I think, just thinking, why can't I cope with things that other people seem to manage quite easily? Mm. Um so I, I think it's a it's a great step forward that there's a, a lot more available. There's a lot more. I mean, obviously, having online help, I think, for young people now is is um, a great thing. And because 
if I'd been able to then sort of Google, you know, what I was feeling and what I was going through, I might have understood it better and, and um, got treatment earlier. But yeah, I think I think there's much more conversation about about depression and things like related things, depression, anxiety, all of those things that we know are kind of affecting young people hugely at the moment. Mm. So, um, well, and, and I mean, part of the fact that depression is now something that we do talk about, that it has become a public discussion, is people like you writing about it. Your book, The Devil Within, uh, in 2008, was a memoir about your experiences of living with depression and really your, your road to, to getting treatment, which started with a monumental public row you had with a boyfriend. Oh, yes, I did. So that was, <laughs> um, well, that was just one of kind of many episodes along the way. And that was in my in my twenties, and I yeah I, I was in a relationship that was quite sort of stormy at the best of times, and um, yeah we did have this absolutely catastrophic public argument, which resulted in yeah it got sort of quite um, dramatic, and he was the first person who said to me I think you need to see somebody, and I was very dismissive of it at first, and then when I thought about it that was the the first that was the first time I ever did go and see um, a therapist when I was. I would have been about 23, 24. And I have been, I've sort of been in and out of therapy kind of over the years. And it, definitely the worst experience I, I had of depression was after my son was born. I had very bad postnatal depression. And that was, again, when I went to, you know, I went and got help for that. And it was as a result of writing about that that I that I ended up writing the book because I wrote a piece about that that experience, partly out of frustration that, you know, there seemed to be so little available on the NHS other than medication, you know, and um, there'd been a lot of reports had come out showing the benefits of therapy and it just wasn't, it was really hard to to actually get that straight away if you were um, not able to pay for it privately. And of course, actually, very sadly, the situation's kind of got worse even than it was in 2002, 2003. So I wanted to write about it, partly to to kind of make sense of it to myself. But you always forget, I think, or I think as a writer, it's such a solitary thing. And you you quite often forget that your books then go out and, and kind of into other people's homes. And that book in particular, I found I found it very moving to have people kind of come up to me at book festivals and say, I bought this for my daughter, I bought this for my wife. And, or, you know, I read this myself and it was just like what I went through. And um, so that kind of connection is, you realise quite how important it is to have... Mm other people talking about it because there there were certain books that I read you know when I was going through the worst of my experience of of depression that that again resonated and you're sort of so grateful that somebody's written about it and shown you that you can come out the other side. Mm. I I wonder if the process of therapy that the sort of unpicking of your thoughts is also similar though to being a writer I mean you're, you're sitting there with your own thoughts unpicking those strands every day perhaps writers don't need therapy as much yeah I have wondered about that and I think I was perhaps a bit resistant to it at first because I was afraid that you know that's it sounds monumentally poncy but I thought you know maybe that's where the stories come from you know maybe if I start kind of unpacking everything that is buried in my unconscious then it'll kind of drain the well but that doesn't seem to have been the case I think it is definitely true that I write to make sense of things Certainly things that have happened to me, but also things that, you know, just in terms of emotional experiences and relationships, things that go on around me or sort of snippets of stories that I've heard about other people's relationships. And and it always triggers something where I find myself thinking, what would it be like to go through that? What would it be like to experience that? And certainly with the, the new book, there are some kind of narrative strands that were prompted by 
things that I had heard from friends or things that I'd heard from other people. But most often it's to try and make sense of my own experience. So I think it does act as a kind of therapy in that way. I mean, I, I don't think it's quite as black and white as saying, you know, I wrote that book about depression and therefore I was better after yeah. that. But it, it definitely helped. And it's a strange thing because, you know, as soon as you write something so personal, you immediately want to take it back and you <laughs> you wish that you could um, kind of pull it back. And, uh, you know, it's quite... It's quite um, it makes you feel quite vulnerable to put something that that personal out in the world. And certainly if I was if I were going to write that book again today, I would write it very differently. But it, I think it was important to me then to write it. And it was certainly helpful to me to kind of try and make sense of that, mm. that experience. And helpful to other people. And sort of a, a reflection of where you are and what you think comes about in, well, I suppose it comes about in, in everybody's books. But in your first book, you were working in the media. And here comes Gaveston, which is kind of focused on, on that area of, of life. Again, I mean, your debut novel wins an award. Yeah, well, that was that was a was an idea that I'd had while I was still at university, and I started writing it when I was about twenty three, I think, when I first started working in newspapers, and it was based on Marlowe's play Edward the Second. So that that was the sort of in an extremely pretentious way, that was the the sort of setup of the story, except that I made it instead of you know Edward being a king, he's a sort of media mogul and. Uh, but I, I tried to keep those character relationships fairly similar, and that was quite. It was quite a long process to get that. Um, I think it, you know it took a, a, about three years to get that written and rewritten, and and I was, um, you know, desperately trying to find a publisher for it. But actually, yeah, I, I mean, I was very pleased and surprised that you know when it got taken on. So I got a tattoo the day that I sold that book because I thought, well, if I if even if I never sell another one, at least I'll remember the day I sold a book. <laughs> To a, to a real publisher. So, What's um, the tattoo and where uh, is it? It's a little lizard. It's on my ankle. <laughs> it's fantastic. <laughs> I'll have to examine yeah, it later. Yeah. <laughs> um, your next book was Real. This was about a, a struggling young playwright. I, and I wondered if that was based on, a, again, a, a real relationship. Well, it's based on... So it's about a young woman who, I don't think it's giving too much away to, who, who ends up having a child with... Um, a guy who then is not around and doesn't want to stick around, which was certainly that was taken from my own experience. The characters, I have to say, are fictional, obviously. <laughs> um, but the framework of that, that, that certainly that setup. And again, that was something I very much wanted to write to try and make sense of the situation that I found myself in. So I wrote that while I was on maternity leave after my son was born in 2002. And I think I wrote it partly just to sort of keep myself sane and to keep myself you know, to to have a project other than, you know, changing nappies and um, trying to stop someone screaming, usually me. But um, <laughs> I wrote that again, and it was to try and sort of to try and understand, also to try and understand from the point of view of a father who would walk away from his child and why somebody would do that and what would, you know, what the consequences would be for them. So I was trying, I suppose, in that way to make sense again of, of um, the experience that I'd been through. Mm. And then I... Yeah, and then I wrote the memoir, and at that point I was like, right, that is, en I've, that is quite enough of writing about myself. So that was a sort of, I drew a line under that at that point. And so in comes S.J. Paris. Yeah. So tell me about the invention of your non-diploma and then this fantastic historical series that you went on to write. Well, the, the historical, I'd always loved, so my sort of two favourite genres were kind of detective stories and historical fiction. And I think probably if I had to pick a favourite novel of all time, it would be The Name of the Rose by Umberto Eco, 
which I read in my teens and I, I just absolutely loved it. So it's that sort of perfect marriage of historical fiction, but really sort of thoroughly researched historical fiction where you're kind of learning something about the period on every page and also brilliant characters and there's a fantastic murder mystery in it. So I loved that and I had always had in the back of my mind this character of Giordano Bruno who is was a real Italian philosopher. There is a statue of him in the Campo dei Fiori in Rome. Uh, if you go there, you can go and um, pay your respects to him. And I'd always sort of been fascinated by his story and wanted to write about him, but he did so much that they, I thought, well, you couldn't just write a historical novel about him. It would be, you know, 2,000 pages long. So I sort of put him to the back of my mind and... and as we've said, I wrote, wrote these two contemporary novels and then the memoir. And then I was having a chat with my agent. I think we, I ended up, I was having dinner with my agent and um, and we were talking about historical crime and how it had sort of taken off and people seemed to be interested in it. And he said, if you've got any ideas, you know, in that, and I mentioned how much I liked it. And he said, well, if you've got any ideas, you know, let's have a chat about it. So I sort of came back with this, this idea about, about, well, I went and looked into Bruno's life a bit more and I discovered this theory that, that he had worked as a spy when he was living in England in, in London in 1583 for Elizabeth's government. So to me, I thought, oh, well, that, that could be the beginning of a kind of, you know, we have him working undercover as a spy. And uh, so I talked to Johnny, my agent, and he really liked the idea. But again, it was that sort of reinvention, you know, I'm, as I'm sure you know, in publishing, sometimes it's a bit easier to, to start a new genre as a different kind of as a different personality mm. almost because then particularly as I'd just done this depression book so we, we we didn't want people kind of picking up this mystery and going oh the depression woman this will be fun <laughs> um yeah so the the pseudonym came out of that and, and also, was there a deliberate blurring of gender there yeah yeah definitely um I think partly just because it's got a male protagonist CJ Sansom who I think is a fantastic um historical fiction writer who's been the kind of daddy of that genre in in its recent iteration, he was already writing. And again, as you'll know, its publishers like to make book jackets look like something that is already successful. So there's that that way of kind of putting, you know, with the initials and then you can kind of make the design appeal to people who are already enjoying this other series. And it kind of took off, which was has been amazing because I'd never done anything like that where people were really sort of waiting for the next one and kind of badgering you on social media and saying when's the next one coming out and like that's uh so it's been great to see how readers have kind of picked up that series and loved it and I mean you've spent 20 years of your life with him yeah well it's been what's it so 2008 so it's been yeah 14 years it's been which is a surprise to me because I never thought I would end up doing doing it for that long but yeah he's the I mean like I said he's done he did so much in his life that you can kind of divide it up into um you know into different installments and uh, have him traveling around and so yeah so the one I'm writing at the moment is set in Prague but we've had him in London we've had him in Canterbury and and in Paris so um so that's nice as well now I actually get to travel again to um do some research for it yeah uh, and I mean you must know this this character incredibly well I mean because as you say he was real he was. He was um, born in 1548. He was a. He became a Dominican friar. He was obviously kind of intellectually brilliant because he got. Uh, he you know he wasn't from a wealthy family, but he sort of got scholarships through the Dominican order and and got into this incredibly prestigious college in Naples to study philosophy. But he was clear, also a troublemaker. You know, from quite a young age, he was asking the wrong questions, challenging you know the church doctrines. 
And eventually he ended up going, he, he sort of questioned Catholic doctrine too many once too often and uh, he ended up having to go on the run and kind of escape over the wall of his convent and go on the run before the Inquisition got to him. And, uh, and he ended up travelling all the way up through Italy, through France and eventually ended up in London. So, and along the way kind of obviously had this ability to talk his way into, you know, very grand houses and, and you know, patronage. He ended up at the court of the King of France and then he ended up in the French embassy in London kind of being friends with a lot of people in Elizabeth I's court. So, yeah, he is, there's so much there to, to play with. And I know I love him. And, and obviously, I think a man of kind of great intellectual courage as well. And, um, and that is important to me because I'm, you know, I've been a member of Penn and things like that for a long time. And, and you know, and he was somebody who eventually died for his for defending free thought that's not a spoiler it's on wikipedia so <laughs> but he yeah he did he did he died for his writings because he wouldn't recant you know his philosophical ideas and uh you know and i do often think about how much courage it must have taken to do that mm. um, and we you know we still see that around the world today with people who are kind of will you get to the point where you have to cover that death well i what i'm going to do is tricky because i don't want to write about I don't want to kill him off completely. And there's a few more books in the series yet to go. But also he was, he spent eight years in prison before they actually executed him, going through a number of different sort of show trials. And it, it the fact that he was imprisoned for so long is kind of testament to the fact that they knew it was going to be, you know, the Inquisition knew it would be very unpopular to get rid of him. And he, so they sort of kept him and, and obviously he was tortured and um so, yeah, I, I haven't quite figured out how we're going to get to the end of that yet. So that's that's still to come. But there's a few more books yet uh, before we get to that point. Uh, While You Sleep was the next book. And again, this is a, a psychological thriller, really. So I'd done five books in the Bruno series at that point, And I'd had this idea for a long time. I'd wanted to write a ghost story. That's my other another genre that I absolutely love. And I think when it's done well, it, it can be brilliant. And I also think it's really hard to do well because you know, you've, it's very hard to scare people on the page. Really easy in a movie. You just need kind of jump cuts and music and things. But um, but to actually, to write the kind of prose where if somebody's reading it in bed late at night, they actually can sort of feel goosebumps. There's, you know, I think Shirley Jackson can do it. I think Susan Hill at her best can do it. You know, there, but there's very few people that can do, do that really well. And uh, so I wanted to challenge myself. And I also wanted to write about women a bit more and I think so you know having done the five books in the Bruno series wanting to step away completely from writing about my own experiences I then found actually I was at that point in my 40s and I was was a single parent and I wanted to I wanted to write a bit more about what life was like for women at that that kind of stage of life and I I couldn't do that through the historical fiction so I I had this idea that I then kind of wrote a bit and, and sent to my agent and said, look, I want to do this as a kind of standalone. So that's where While You Sleep came from. It was a, you know, it's a story about a woman who is alone on a Scottish island in a sort of classic haunted house situation. But um, what I like playing with is that idea of, you know, whether whether it's in her mind and wh- or whether there really is something out there and something in the house. And um, so that was a lot of fun to write. I really enjoyed that one. Mm. Well, and now we come to the one I'm very excited to be talking about because it's your brand new one, just published. It's called Storm. Uh, and this one's set in a French chateau. Yeah. Uh, and again, you've got these slightly older women and also a very young and beautiful woman. You, you've got these wonderfully alive relationships, these couples that are pulling apart and coming back together. And it all works 
looks beautifully against this kind of opulent background and deep unhappiness. And it's just a, a I found it an absolutely engaging read. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you so much. So this, yeah, the, the setting is... I did stay many years ago um, when my son was about four. I stayed at a, a really gorgeous chateau sort of in, in that general area of France that the the landscape is based on and the, and the building is based on, not the dreadful people <laughs> um, who were there. They were lovely, the people who um, who lived there, I must say that. But um, so that was the kind of the, the idea of it. But I, one of the inspirations for this story that I have always loved. I don't know if you've read um, Ali Smith's novel. I think it was 2005 it came out called The Accidental. And it wasn't one of hers that got a huge amount of attention. And I think it should have done. But it's this, it's a brilliant story. It's this very dysfunctional family of four, you know, two parents and um, teenage son and kind of just preteen daughter, go on holiday to a not very appealing part of Norfolk, and they all hate each other. And it's they're having a sort of dreadful family holiday. And then out of nowhere, this extremely beautiful rather mysterious young woman appears and just sort of walks into the house and makes herself at home. And the family are so dysfunctional that they all assume she's something to do with one of the others, but so they don't like to ask because it's a bit rude and they're very English and they also don't want to kind of... Yeah, so, so nobody really asks who she is. And gradually, she's like almost like a sort of Mary Poppins figure. She appears out of nowhere. We don't know much about her, but gradually she she starts to sort of draw out all the kind of poison that is between these family members and with each of them in their different ways, she kind of starts to heal them. And um, and by the time she mysteriously leaves again when her work is done, they are all kind of better people than they were. And I just love that. I love the kind of that idea of this mysterious stranger appearing, but also being kind of having written crime fiction for, <laughs> for the last decade. My thoughts took a much darker turn. When I went and reread it again quite recently, I thought, well, what if somebody like that turned up? But she didn't have good intentions. She had actually quite malevolent intentions. You know, what happens? And also that there's that real kind of sexual power dynamic of what happens in a group of 40 something couples you know, and these are all very wealthy and privileged people. What happens when some somebody who kind of disrupts that comes in? What does it do to the women in the group? What does it do to the men? So that was where the, the idea of this stranger coming into this close-knit group came from. It was sort of partly inspired by that. Mm. I love the, um, the group that the men are in, this very, very tight friendship, and they're bound by something, and we think that it's just them sort of being at university. But kind of Bullingdon Club-ish. Yeah, a little bit, except it's a sort of... Um, I wanted it to be like the kind of flip side of the Bullingdon because these are guys who, they you know, they were all at an elite university together. They've all been friends for sort of more than 20 years or they've been very closely tied together. But they are all now people who... They all have careers in which they are sort of seen to be doing good in the world. So one of them was a human rights lawyer. One of them is a sort of lefty liberal journalist. One of them works in AI, kind of developing AI. And one of them's um, a TV producer, but he kind of writes very gritty dramas about, you know, underprivileged young people. And um, so they're all people who are sort of seen to be people who have a certain kind of moral high ground. And, you know, what happens when those people are, are revealed to be not quite what they seem or to have, you know, to have morals that are not the ones they profess publicly. So, yeah, mm. I was quite interested in uh, that. And then, of course, there's just this whole kind of thriller element to it and obviously no spoilers, but it's it's deeply exciting the way that this plot unfolds. And people oh, behave in ways, I mean, you think you know one character and then she does something really quite unexpected. That's it. It's funny because, the you know, plotting is the bit I do find hardest and I... 
since I started writing crime or mystery stories, that is always the bit that I sort of that I have to work hardest at. I I like writing characters and and the dialogue and all of that. I feel comes quite easily, but particularly with a crime plot, there's got to be tension that builds and there's got to be sort of red herrings thrown in and and um, uh, you know you're, you're sort of drip feeding information to keep the reader guessing. So this did go through a few drafts because I, you know in the first draft I think I'd sort of kind of given away to given away too much too early. So yeah, and and, and playing with time frames and things. So I'm I'm glad you felt that because. Yeah, that was the idea. It's got to be kind of exciting as well. Mm, no, it definitely was. And, and the whole, there's a single mother theme in there too. There's there's extreme violence that, that comes in. And of course, children and tech. Uh, and I thought that that strand was lovely, knowing that you have a son of about the same age uh, as this boy Lucas in the book, who's who's deeply wedded to his tech. Yeah, and, and again, I mean, he's someone who is not based on anyone in particular, but is... I was quite interested in the idea of what happens to a boy who grows up surrounded by enormous privilege. You know, how does he rebel against these kind of very cool, very wealthy parents? You know, what would he do? And I thought, well, you know, he probably would want to kind of drop out of school and become an eco-warrior and join Extinction Rebellion or something like that, because, you know, that's sort of all he's got to, uh, to kick against. But... Yeah, it was it was all those sort of family dynamics that interested me and, um, you know, and how somebody deals with, you know, one of the main characters is somebody who's dealing with grief she, and she's a widow and she's she's dealing with that and, and she's sort of in the middle of it and, and I was interested in trying to write a character who is, you know, maybe not particularly dynamic. She's someone who is sort of struggling to come out from under this, this shadow and then you know, that's over her life and then into the midst of her grief comes this very vibrant young woman who sort of starts to draw her out of herself a bit more. So um, Mm. that was another dynamic that I was interested in. Oh, it's absolutely fascinating. I would totally recommend it to to everybody. Thank you. I think it's it's just, it grips you. And I mean, I think I read it in a day. It was just like, okay, I'm not doing anything else. I just want to read this book. Oh, well, that is the greatest (laughs) praise I could hope for, yeah. It was absolutely lovely. Just before you go, we mentioned at the beginning, we both do a similar job in that we chair things at festivals. Mm. And I just wondered if you, I mean, I'd like to learn from this, how you approach that whole job. Oh, I love doing that. And I I mean, I've been doing it for such a long time. I think I started going to the Hay Festival with my first book, so that would have been 20 years ago. And I just enjoyed it so much. And I I did kind of various interviewing, um, live interviews and things through journalism as well when I was working full time as a journalist. And I mean, the most interesting thing to me, I've definitely sort of got more confident at it as I've as I've gone on the most interesting thing to me is when it becomes a conversation and there's only ever been you know one or two people who've been really hard work that I've interviewed publicly but what you want to try and do is sort of find you know find the things that the that that the person is most interested in talking about with their with their books and again I think I suppose at literary festivals it's not quite like doing a news night interview or something it's not you're not trying to put someone on the rope so it is a much softer job you're trying to draw someone out to talk about something that clearly they have an interest in and they're enthusiastic about so um certainly with fiction writers that's it's usually quite a fun and easy task. Well, hopefully you and I will be discussing Storm at a literary festival somewhere very oh, soon. So it's nice to have them back in person, isn't it? Isn't it? So, it's yeah. fantastic. Uh, Storm is by Stephanie Merritt, but also look out for her historical series under the name of S.J. Paris. Storm is published by HarperCollins and it's out now.
You've been listening to Meet the Writers, thanks to the production team of Nora Hull, Lillian Fawcett and Steph Chungu. You can download this show and previous episodes from our website or app, from SoundCloud, MixCloud or iTunes. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.